Hello, and welcome back to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast. It has been far too long, ladies, gentlemen, and all nine binaries in between. I am your host, Zach Miller. And I'm your other host, Martin Cook. And sorry for the long delay, but, you know, with COVID, the pandemic, and seasonal depression, and a bunch of other excuses we can name, we, uh... <laughs> But we're back, and we're going to be talking latest news in the film industry. We're going to cover the Oscars coming up next Sunday, uh, and the future of the film industry, because a lot has changed over this past year, some for the better and some not so good. So, Martin, how the hell are you? Uh, I'm doing all right, but I think you're doing a little better than me. I'm still uh, up here in Canada. We're still in full-on lockdown, especially here in Toronto region, so... uh, and and it even snowed this morning, so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I would imagine you're doing better than me. But, no, th- things are right, um, at least despite the snow, it was gone by noon. Uh, things, you know, weather is getting a little nicer, and uh, I'm, I'm, on a, I'm on a vaccine list, so there there is hope some around the horizon, around the corner, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been a lot of developments in the film industry as a whole over this past year. Um, a lot of movie studios are moving more towards the uh, streaming platforms, and as we've discussed before on this podcast, that's kind of the natural progression that they were going to anyway, but they have been forced to adapt or perish. And, uh, you know, studios like Disney, Warner Brothers have all moved to releasing their films on their apps as opposed to theater. Disney is doing both, but Warner Brothers is doing it for a much lower price. So uh, what do you think of the most pressing, most important, what are the most glaring issues so far? Well, I think there's actually probably a reckoning coming in terms of uh, talent and and the studios. And and look, this isn't new. This has happened before when the business model changes. It always takes a while for contracts and everything to catch up. Back in the 90s when, when uh, home video became such a big deal, all of a sudden all these people didn't have that kind of stuff in their contract. And in terms of residuals, that was always a big deal. But now this is... A huge deal. Um, I mean, it was probably brought to light most um, uh, most visibly by the the big spat that the top talent agencies had with Warner Brothers over their decision to put some of their bigger movies like uh, Godzilla vs Kong on HBO Max. Right? I mean, that for a, a, a movie that had already been produced and already made. A lot of the contracts these days, it's very common for directors, stars, producers, sometimes even lowly writers, to have uh, mm-hmm. to have back-end deals or, or at least percentages of the box office. And so if studios are going to unilaterally decide when and when they aren't going to put things into a, a theater, then that really affects that. And I think, uh, you know, they'll, they'll come, come together on one-off agreements on these things, but... At some point, I think there's going to have to be a big reckoning and a big uh, change in the way that studios and talent and agencies figure out how to monetize everything that everybody does. Yeah, and those back-end deals on the surface seem like a really good idea, especially with uh, known quantities, known franchises like Godzilla Kong. I mean, that was a surefire hit. Exactly. Every, every Godzilla Kong 
slash Kong movie in that series that that rebooted series has been a smash hit. So if you can get a little percentage on the back end, that's uh, that's easy money supposedly. But I mean, who could have seen this coming? Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I mean, I think it, it was slowly coming, but as you said at, at the opening, this just really exacerbated everything and sped up the process of. Oh shit, we got to deal with this now because <laughs> this is not what anybody signed up for. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, obviously a, a few of the stars are going to be able to push things a little bit more. The big question is going to be whether or not they find ways to trickle all that down to mm-hmm. to to other people and, and all that money. And again, you know, agents will be able to make their money for their big name clients no matter what. And it's the it's the do do people way down the line on you know once you get to the four minute mark of any. Uh, of any movie's credit list, are, are those people going to end up seeing more money or less money if everything is going on to streaming platforms? Who knows? Yeah, like <laughs> nobody's worried about Gal Gadot. No, exactly. Because <laughs> exactly. uh, Wonder, Wonder Woman was another one of those that went straight to HBO Max. Yeah. But like, yeah, you're worried about the way down the line people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, speaking of the the theaters, uh, it really broke my heart that Arclight had to close in Hollywood because as somebody who spent a lot of their childhood in California, in that Southern California area, Arclight was like going to a rock concert. Yeah. Um, it was so worth the extra couple of bucks to be in like this stadium style seating. I mean, it's where most of the high profile movie premieres occur in the United States is at the Arc or was, sorry, at the Arclight in Hollywood. Yeah. And, and it, yeah, it, it it really like it tore my heart out to know that they were closing because those were some of the nicest theaters on the planet. It really is sad, and I really hope at least a couple of the the big um, sort of flagship ones get bought out by other companies, like the the Buckminster Fuller Design Cinerama Dome, which has been a <laughs> staple in Los Angeles since the what fifties, sixties, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and as you said, the one the one on Hollywood Boulevard next to the uh, the Chinese theater, I really hope that those end up getting bought up by somebody else, so that at least those big ones can continue in their present form and don't get you know sold off to a Whole Foods or something. <laughs> yeah, the thing that pissed me off about that is that ArcLight is so instrumental in catapulting so many people's careers in the film industry. You'd think that somebody would pitch in and just bail them out a little bit. I mean, everybody from like Quentin Tarantino's had premieres there, and for such a hardcore cinephile, I thought he would at least step up a little bit. And uh, I'm not calling him out directly, but that's just the first person that comes to mind because he doesn't only make films; he's a professed lover of film too. Yeah, exactly, and specifically of theaters and and these directors that always talk about you know like Christopher Knoll and and uh, and Scorsese, Scorsese and Spielberg. people about how yeah Spielberg how important it is that their movies get shown in theaters. And now uh, yeah, they're kind of silent on this whole issue. Yeah, I mean, they really should put their money where their mouth is if they want to be taken seriously in this issue. Yeah, but it, but it's, you know, obviously it was it was ArcLight and Pacific Theater chains uh, closed. I think it's still an open question of whether there'll be others that will mm. that will end up um, falling because of the pandemic. 
Uh, some of the, you know, AMC is probably going to stick around. They've they've got a decent model with their A list subscription kind of model and some other things. But a lot of the other ones, I I don't know. You know, is Regal Cinema still going to be able to survive? Um, in Canada, we've got a couple. How many of those will will survive? It's I think it's still an open question. I don't think that ArcLight and Pacific will be the last to fold. Unfortunately, no. I think they're just the most high profile, but. I mean, even AMC is holding on by a thread. Yeah. I've kept my membership active, except for, I think, three months when there was just total shutdown. But I've been trying my best to see all these movies in theaters. Um, You know, I shelled out 20 bucks a pop to see all three Lord of the Rings movies in IMAX, which was an experience, to say the least. Uh, it would have been I, fantastic. I never, yeah, I never saw those in IMAX. And... um. For all the uh, the big budget blockbusters, I try to see those in theaters too, just because of the experience. I saw Wonder Woman in theaters, um, uh, Soul, um, uh, a couple others. Uh, I still haven't gotten out to see Godzilla Kong, but I will before it's up. And uh, definitely seen Mortal Kombat in Dolby. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately here it just hasn't been possible. I mean, we had a brief interlude last summer where uh, theaters were open for about a month and then the things shut down again. And I jumped out and saw two movies then, including Tenet when it came mm. out. Um, but yeah, it's kind of sad that I haven't been able to do that up here. Man, I can only imagine the... Uh, I did see it in the theater at the time, but certainly not in IMAX. That, that cavalry charge and Return, oh, Return of the King must have been amazing <laughs> in IMAX. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I, I get goosebumps just thinking about it again. Yeah, it was it was incredible in IMAX. Uh, Yeah, that's got we we can't lose that kind of stuff. I mean, as much as we just kind of give him grief for for not uh, speaking up now, but those those guys like Spielberg who talk about how important it is to see movies in a theater, they're not wrong, right? No, absolutely not. Stuff that you just can't replace that. Yeah, when you, I mean, when, especially when you're in IMAX or Dolby and there's, you know, like you said, a cavalry charge, you feel the rumbling of the horses under your seats and the, the swelling score, like, especially those giant epics. I mean, there's no replace, there's no home sound system that can replace that. Yeah, and, and if you happen to see movies like that opening weekend and the crowd's into it and everybody's oh cheering and whatever, you know, going back to a couple of years ago when the, the Avengers um, Infinity War and then Endgame came and, you know, just the cheers from the crowd when Thor comes onto the battlefield in, in the Infinity War and when uh, Cap catches uh, the hammer and end yeah. game, like those, those kind of moments, you just, you know, you can't duplicate that in your house sitting on your couch. <laughs> Absolutely not. Because, uh, the, yeah, those kind of movies, uh, when I rewatch them, I think about the crowd reaction in the, in those moments. I mean, even the much maligned last star Wars trilogy, when, uh, you know, the, a long time ago, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then you hear the dun and everybody just goes fucking ballistic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, yeah just, it's like, it's like a closest thing to a, a rock concert without actually having the, you know, music, the performers there. Exactly. Yeah. Now there's just, there's just something, there's something to it, but at the same time, if, you know, we can't kid ourselves. It is inevitable that we're moving towards more things being on streaming services and, and studios and production companies specifically designing their productions to be released that way as the primary goal. So, 
Yeah, it's just the, the industry is going to have to catch up and, and see where that'll take us. One of the changes, obviously, that happened already is the, uh, we'll talk about the Oscars in a bit, but the Oscar requirements, right? I mean, it used to be mm. that you had to have your movie released in theaters before a certain date. They got rid of those requirements for obvious reasons for uh, the, this one, but I wonder if they'll be able to go back. I'm, I'm not sure. What, what do you think? Are they going to be able to put those requirements back in next year? I kind of doubt it. I don't think so. And honestly, I don't really think they should. Like uh, That might sound contradictory to what we were just talking about as far as the theater experience goes, but so, like some of these Netflix movies, just in order to qualify for the Oscars, they put their movies in just like two or three theaters in New York and L.A. just just to qualify. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if 90% of the country isn't going to be able to see it in theaters anyway, it's just kind of a arbitrary rule that doesn't really matter in the end. Exactly. Yeah. If they're going to make a rule like that, it should at least be a minimum amount of theaters. It can't just be, as you say, one theater for one weekend showing and, Oh, okay. It had a theater release. Well, come on. That's, yeah. that's bullshit. And everybody knows it. <laughs> I, I do wonder what, one thing I was wondering about, um, now this is just me picking something totally out of the air, but, um, China has had an outsized influence on the, the industry over the past couple of years, because the Chinese theater market has become such an important part of the bottom line of these major studios, mm-hmm. right? To the, to the point that, you know, you, you're get, you basically have to check with the Chinese government almost on your plot points of movies, certain movies, Absolutely. to make sure that you don't piss them off. But I'm wondering if, with things increasingly moving towards streaming, I mean, Netflix doesn't operate in China, for instance, so they're not going to be beholden to them. I wonder if that will somewhat relax China's uh, influence over the movie industry. I kind of hope so. I don't know if it will, but I kind of hope so. <laughs> I really hope so, because that that's becoming... That, well, before the pandemic, that was becoming a real concern of mine because the film industry as a whole had to bend over backwards to a communist regime to cater to them and make sure that, you know, nothing offended anybody and that, um, you know, I'm all for creative freedom. So it really limits the kind of movies that can be made. Like, you know, there couldn't be uh, like ghosts, for example, because the Chinese government <laughs> is uh communist and they don't, you know the government is their god so you couldn't have any ghost movies in china oh, i didn't realize and, that that was yeah. A thing. Okay. Yeah. but it even but, yeah, i mean you know it even goes down to to the stars and the directors and everything i mean if a star says you know one tweet about hong kong protests or something like that and they're fucking blacklisted and that, mm-hmm. and that's, yeah, as you said, that's, you know, going back to a different kind of blacklist in the fifties. And, and we definitely don't want to return to that. Uh, politics should not have an influence on that kind of content in, in a way that, <laughs> that it seemed, it was definitely moving in that direction in a big way before, before the pandemic. Hit. Yeah. And I'm all for diversity, but when, you know, they just put a Chinese superstar in like a, a two second cameo in a movie, which has been known to happen just so the Chinese crowd will go wild, then it just kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah, that's tokenism. And that's, yeah, exactly. That's exactly the exact opposite of the kind of diversity that we need to be moving towards. Yeah. Yeah. 
But yeah, lots of lots of changes. Lots of uh, we'll, we'll have to see where the industry. It's definitely going to be an interesting twelve months. It's been an interesting year this past year, and uh, the next year I think is going to bring even more changes. Yeah, because once people are allowed to go out again, are we going to revert back to where we were, or are we going to adapt into something different? I mean, the the whole industry is scrambling to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> so people need actually get, you know, paid to talk about this stuff and think about this stuff or still wondering the same things we are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what's that, uh, that famous quote from, uh, from Goldman's book that, uh, first the rule of Hollywood, you know, nobody knows anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's especially true these days. Nobody has a fucking clue what's going to happen over the next little while. But everybody has to act like they, they, they don't of course. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise, they'll lose their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we will uh, we'll keep you guys posted as the, as the weeks and months go on. So, uh, switching gears, we're going to bring back our most famous segment, and I believe most popular, Either Or! Either or. <laughs> so... As we all know, there's been a huge influx in Marvel series. There's been WandaVision, Falcon. There's Loki down the pipeline. Um, so, only two have been released so far, though. So, either or. What's the better Marvel series on Disney Plus as we stand today? WandaVision or The Falcon and The Winter Soldier? Okay, we should mention that we're recording this before the last episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier drops. Um, so this is an incomplete ranking, maybe. Um, but I'm still actually going to say Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I think WandaVision was maybe more... Um, had grander ambitions because... And, and is certainly the more original series. WandaVision, no question, is the more original series. And what it was able to do was fantastic. I just think that Falcon and Winter Soldier actually goes deeper. I mean, WandaVision at its heart was was basically about one theme. It, mm-hmm. it dealt with grief. Um, mm-hmm. A pretty important theme and probably very important these days. Um, mm-hmm. But Falcon and the Winter Soldier deals with grief, but it also deals with so many other things. I mean, it deals with a legacy of racial discrimination in the United States. Obviously, that's a big theme. It, it deals with regret. It deals with uh, forgiveness. It deals with so many different complex issues. And maybe from time to time, it's a little heavy-handed in the dialogue, but I, but I think they've done it in a fantastic way, and it's just... I've been blown away. So I'm narrowly going to say Falcon and Winter Soldier. Yeah, the first four episodes of WandaVision, I thought were some of the best things that Marvel's done so far, and that's saying quite a lot. I love the, all the sitcom parodies because I grew up watching Nick at Night and, you know, with uh, I Love Lucy, Bewitched, Dick Van Dyke, that, that whole thing. And uh, I thought it was just, as you said, extremely original and creative. And it made me care about a relationship that I did not give a shit about in the MCU. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Because, it, I mean, it was not that well-developed as um, through, like, Age of Ultron, Civil War, and um, uh, Infinity War. And, uh, you know, when when Wanda was forced to kill Vision in Infinity War, they tried to make it this huge emotional moment. And uh, I thought the acting was really good, but it just, you know, when half of the 
planet and half the universe get, getting wiped out, then it kind of falls flat. And, you know, the, just the whole this chick's banging a robot. Like, I just really, I just really didn't care. I thought, I thought it was the, the, the most uh, boring subplot in the MCU, but this made me care about it. Um, on a much deeper level. That said, I do agree with you that Falcon and Winter Soldier is better just because, um, tonally it's much more in line with what Marvel is all about. Um, as you said, there's this thread. I love the buddy cop element. I think they're doing a great, like, Danny Glover, Mel Gibson type thing. <laughs> and uh, um, it's really fleshing out these two characters that have had a lot of screen time in the MCU, but we haven't really gotten to know them as people yeah. yet. Yeah. And as you said, the, the racial issues were uh, extremely... Uh, poignant and well done um the fact that there was almost a black captain america in the 50s but you know america being america they weren't anywhere near ready for that and the fact that he was in prison and ostracized it casts a shadow over what captain america was and for somebody that was as infallible as steve rogers was it's uh it 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 really makes you think about the history of America in a way that I hadn't really before. I mean, of course, we know America's history, but the fact that they were able to tie it in in a realistic way was really astounding to me. Yeah, yeah, obviously, hearkening back to, you know, the the real story of the experiments on the Tuskegee Airmen and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's incredible how they've been able to, able to layer that stuff in and also not give easy answers, right? Like I thought mm-hmm. in the most, in episode five, that conversation between Isaiah Bradley and, and Sam was an incredible conversation because it's, yeah, you know, Isaiah Bradley has his point of view and he ain't wrong, right? Like mm-hmm. he's right. And, and, but so is Sam when he says, look, that doesn't mean I'm just going to stop fighting. So they're, they're disagreeing with each other, but they're both kind of right. And I think that's true for those conversations that there's, they're, it's, they're not easy conversations. No. And, and I think the, yeah, the show has done a really good job of that. I will say one more thing on WandaVision though. Elizabeth Olsen was a revelation as, mm. as an actress in that man. Oh man. Uh, I mean, I, th- I thought she's been decent, but she, but she, her acting jobs just blew me away. The man, the way she was able to, to mimic all those different um, kinds of characters <laughs> through the things, but at the same time, just embody this sort of, uh, as I said, like the grief that she was experiencing. I thought she was fantastic. I, I hope she's not up for an Emmy for that next year. Yeah, I mean, she blows her, twi- her sisters out of the water <laughs> <laughs> in the acting department. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, just yeah. Another thing about Falcon Winter Soldier, it's just uh, Captain America looms so large in the MCU, second to only Iron Man, I would say. And I think this series is doing what Spider the Spider Man Homecoming did for Iron Man. Um, because we're getting closure on one of the top two Avengers that you know essentially gave their lives for the universe. I mean, Steve obviously led a long, happy life in the in the past, but as far as the character goes, that was the last time we got to see him. So I think this is offering 
closure and as a launching pad to the next phase as well, which is what the Spider-Man movies are kind of doing with Iron Man. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's um, not only was it necessary for the story, um, because it would have been weird if the stories continue and everybody's just like, all right, that was done with. Now let's move Mm -hmm. on. I mean, in both those series, they're dealing with the after effects of the blip, as they call it, right? And it still weighs pretty heavily. And I think they kind of needed to story-wise. But also for the for the MCU writ large, I think it's it's something that they needed to do as well to, as you say, kind of help turn the page for the audience that, okay, now we're going to introduce, um, go deeper on some of these characters that we've already introduced to you, and then little snippets of other characters. I mean, there's, uh, people have been talking about this, the young Avengers, I don't know what they're called. I'm, I'm not a comic book reader, but... Um, <laughs> And I guess Isaiah Bradley's grandson is one of these, um, and there's and there's a few others that they've introduced. You know, Hawkeye's daughter and stuff. And it seems like at some point they're going to start moving towards those Wanda's two two kids. That uh, I guess in the comics they all become a team. And so you're seeing little sprinkles of those new characters coming in that I'm sure the MCU will rely on in the future. <laughs> And I got to give a quick shout out to Wyatt Russell as oh, <laughs> the, <yeah. laughs> the, the new evil Captain America. I think he's doing a bang up job. Yeah. And, and Marvel's learning their lesson, right? I mean, they've had um, in some of the movies, their their villains have been kind of one dimensional and those movies haven't been as good. And the movies where their villains are relatable and understandable, those have been the best movies. And so I think they've learned their lesson in that. And Wyatt Russell, you know, the very first introduction to him is pretty sympathetic, right? He's sitting there mm-hmm. and he's wondering whether or not this is something he can actually do if he can take it on. And so I think they're doing a good job of that. And even the Flag Smashers, you know, the, the Carly Morgenthau, she's pretty sympathetic through most of it until she starts becoming more and more extreme. So I think Marvel's doing a really good job of that. Um, it just It just elevates the series. Yeah, you can definitely relate, and they, the villains are giving good arguments. I think uh, Killmonger, Thanos, and Loki are the three best villains that MCU has produced so far, and that's because they're so relatable and yeah. you know charismatic too. And and Nemo now too, right? Like Baron Nemo. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, Zemo, 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 Nemo. <laughs> Finding Zemo. Finding, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a crossover movie you didn't expect. Yeah, Baron uh, Zemo, yeah, he's, you know, it, most of what he, he's the one who's, who's dropping truth bombs all over the place. Most of the shit that guy says, you're like, yeah, he's kind of right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, ran a long time for it either or, but, you know, had to, we had to hash that out a little yeah. bit. <laughs> it's been too long. All right, so... Next up, either or, who weathered the pandemic better, Disney or Warner Brothers? Uh, okay, I'll be shorter on this. For me, it's Disney. Um, and they, they both, uh, Warner Brothers probably took a bigger gamble when they paired up with HBO Max and put a bunch of their things on there. Um, I think that for Warner Brothers, that's more of a one-off. I don't know if that's as sustainable. Uh, but Disney has really set themselves up with uh, now on Disney Plus, with all you know, with the Mandalorian's been a hit for them. They've got some other Star Wars series coming along, um, and now these Marvel series. And I think they're realizing the thing that has been successful for Netflix, which is 
people, the movies are good, but people blitz through your movie catalog. What they want to keep coming back for are series. And so they're setting mm. themselves up well with that. And then their purchase of 20th Century Fox and how they've pretty well seamlessly started to integrate that into uh, Disney Plus with the star thing and everything. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think Disney's really set themselves up well to move forward from here. I am actually going to have to go with Warner Brothers here because I think HBO Max is my new favorite streaming service. Hmm. And, you know, I know they're all owned by Time Warner, but at this point in history, Warner Brothers and HBO Max are linked at the hip. And um, I think the selection that they have is incredible. Everything from... You know, Sopranos, The Fresh Prince. Um, I don't know if you saw the Fresh Prince reunion, but <laughs> it was incredible. No, I didn't catch uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not necessarily under the Warner Brothers banner, but I think they're going to be safe as long as they're with HBO Max. And um, I think they will pull back from just releasing all their movies straight to streaming, especially with all the backlash from the agencies and everything. I mean, Disney at this point is completely bulletproof. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're the titans of the industry, and nobody's going to knock them off their perch anytime soon. But I think Warner Brothers, who were in legitimate jeopardy at the start of this whole thing, especially when you have a tentpole film like Tenant, and almost nobody went to see it nah. because they couldn't. So I think that was the first real, like, quote-unquote, COVID movie and, you know, when it's a Nolan movie and they spend God knows how much, like probably $500 million <laughs> or whatever on it, and uh, to have it so underperform their expectations, I think they've made a really good recovery. I think it was a knee-jerk reaction to kind of get their movies onto HBO Max just because they didn't really have any choice and they didn't know what the future held, but I think they, they were able to weather the storm in a way that Disney didn't really because Warner Brothers had to adapt on the fly big time and all Disney did was put their movies out available for 29.99 and I'm not paying 30 bucks for a movie when I get <laughs> AMC A list and I can go see three movies a week for 24.99 <laughs> Yeah those, those are fair enough points I will say my my viewpoint is somewhat Tainted by the fact that we don't get HBO Max in Canada. HBO, oh. HBO comes through on something called Crave. And um, so we get, you know, all the HBO shows and everything. But like the bastards they are, they've been trying to milk extra money out of us. So I haven't had the full HBO Max experience because Wonder Woman, Godzilla, those movies haven't been released for free on HBO Max. They have been trying wow. to, uh, you know, get us to pay 30 bucks for a fucking rental for those movies. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just not going there yet. So, uh, so, so yeah, maybe my viewpoint on Warner Brothers and HBO is, is a little tainted from that. God, I had no idea. <laughs> Why do they try to bone you guys like that? I don't know. I don't know. So yeah, and especially when I started hearing bad reviews of, of Wonder Woman, I waited until they finally dropped it down to the, the regular rental price before finally <laughs> seeing that. And I still haven't seen Godzilla, so... <laughs> All right, that brings us to our last either or. What's the better Oscars format or no host? 
Uh, okay, that's a good question. I'm, I'm going to, especially because that'll lead us into our discussion of the Oscars, I'm going to I'm going to cough out <laughs> and say TVD, um, but because I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how they do with this one. You know, Soderbergh's producing. Um, he says that it's especially the opening is going to seem more like a film than an actual TV presentation. If they can pull that off, then I'll be willing to say no host is better because I think sometimes the discussion around it gets caught up so much in who the host is and whether or not their jokes landed and whether or not they did a good job that it sometimes takes the attention away from the actual movies and things that the Oscars should be about. Um, whereas I think if it, there's no host, presumably it should run a little faster and they should be able to um, still get jokes in and different people. And so I think no host is better, but we've only had a couple examples so far. And so we'll see after this one, whether or not it really works. And if so, then I'll say no host. All right. Well, I will not be wishy-washy. I will go, (laughs) (laughs) I will go unequivocally with no host. Okay. Like how many years do we need to see Amy Poehler and Tina Fey repeat the same goddamn jokes over and over again? And I I love Amy Poehler and Tina Fey though, (laughs) but yeah, you're right. And they're constantly complaining about how their award shows are three and a half hours plus, and just they're constantly just bitching and moaning, oh, we're not, we're losing all these ratings because you know it's so long, and not the average person doesn't give a shit about the Oscars. Well, then cut out the fucking monologues that take twenty <laughs> minutes at the beginning of the show. Yeah, like, <laughs> and I mean. As you know, people that want to ostensibly be in the film industry one day, it it breaks my heart when these people achieve the pinnacles of their career and they're relegated to like ninety seconds of thanking people, and then they yeah. start playing the the wrap it up music, and so yeah, get rid of all the bullshit. Let the artists thank who they want to thank and give their speeches because those are the emotional high points of the show. It's not whether, you know, Billy Crystal can get a laugh out of the audience again. <laughs> for the, yeah. For the 30th time or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. So yeah, I will absolutely go with no host any day of the week. And like you said, I'd rather the presenters make a, a quip or two because, you know, those are the people that are, in the industry, you know, mixing it up. I like to see the dynamics between the, cause it's usually two people that go up there. I like to see whether they have chemistry or not. And it, I think that's just infinitely more fascinating than Billy Crystal or Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Yeah, I agree because there's, there's so much pressure on them to be funny at the same time, make sure they're not too over the line and that the networks like it and all that kind of stuff. Whereas if you just have the presenters, it's just, very short, yeah. They can get a minute introduction and just blow it and leave people wanting more, right? I mean, so yeah. you know, there's clips around of some of the best ones. One of the best ones that you can see clips of was Jim Carrey from a few years ago at the Golden Globes. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen his introduction where he comes out. They announced him as two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey, and he comes out and he does this riff on, you know, how. Uh, he he dreams of becoming three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey because <laughs> then it would be enough. Then, then, then I would have actually mattered. You know, it's, it's just <laughs> fucking brilliant stuff. And just having a short format as opposed to letting somebody like Jim Carrey, who is hilarious, but letting him go on for 20 minutes, just, yeah, it, it focuses it. It's 
I, yeah. All right. I'm going to stop being wishy-washy. I'm going to agree. No host. All right. <laughs> even, even if this weekend bombs, but I hope, I hope and, I won't. Uh, I think the exception to the rule, at least for me personally, is Ricky Gervais. Because he, it's it's more of a roast than, yeah, although, than anything although else. Even Ricky Gervais, too, it started to become just kind of the same thing over and over again. I mean, obviously yeah, yeah. his jokes were different, but after the what third or fourth time he did, it was like, okay, yeah, we we kind of get this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody has their stick, yeah, and you can't just keep bringing the same people back and back and back and back again. It just it's we know what you have to say, so. Let's get to the people whose night this is really about because they've been working literally their entire lives for this one moment. Exactly. So now that we've shit on the Oscar hosts, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's move on to the uh, the awards. We're going to be picking who we think will win and also who we think should win because those are seldom in line with one another. <laughs> exactly. And I will say as a caveat that I haven't seen all the movies. Like I've seen six out of the eight Best Picture nominations. Um, but that probably puts me ahead of, what, 90% of Oscar voters? So, If, uh, if not more. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. When you get down to the, the nuts and bolts of how these award shows and the uh, the winners are elected. It's it's so it's so political and arbitrary. It's just like nobody watches the documentaries. Nobody watches the short films. Nah. <laughs> just like whatever they see is uh, catching momentum at the right time. They're just like, okay, I'll vote for that and act like I've seen it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I will say the the two main ones that I haven't seen are Minari and The Father. And the reason for that, again, is because they're the ones that they're still having the temerity to fucking charge 20 bucks for a rental for. So I'm just, I have, just haven't seen them yet. For a <laughs> rental. That is, that is obscene. That's absurd. Yeah. <laughs> you don't even get to keep exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> I go out and buy a Blu-ray for 15 for, bucks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So I haven't seen those ones. <laughs> and just to preface this whole thing, I think for several reasons that this might be the weakest Oscar field we have ever seen. It, I, th- I think I, it is too. I'm starting to warm up to it. That was my impression when the announcement first happened. And I think part of it was that I hadn't seen a lot of them, but I also hadn't heard of a lot of these movies. And I realized that that's a lot because the studios just haven't been putting the money that they, you know, there's been no press junkets. There's no, so a lot of, when the uh, nominations first came out, I was like, what movie? Who? Who's that? Yeah. Um, and I've, you know, I've been doing some research and trying to see as many as possible. So I'm starting to warm up to this field a little bit more, but I think you're right. I think overall it's a fairly weak field this year for obvious reasons, because not as many movies have been released and a lot's been delayed. Yeah, I've just been so puzzled and blindsided by a lot of these nominations. I mean, there's there's some obvious ones, but uh, yeah, they're just the studios can't afford to put that money into the art house indie projects that you know usually win the Oscars. Like you know, Parasite was the runaway winner last year, and it was a fantastic movie, but that was because the studio could afford to take risks, and they just can't anymore. They it's yeah. either tent pole tent pole or nothing. Yeah. And that's a shame, but here we are. Exactly. So we're going to start out with Best Animated Feature Film. The nominees are Onward by Pixar, Over the Moon from Netflix, a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, Netflix, 
Soul, Pixar, and Wolfwalkers by Apple TV+. Okay. Um, for me, this is actually one of the weaker uh, categories, uh, animated categories we've had in a while. Um, and so I'm probably going to say that Soul probably will win and probably should win, but I don't feel that strongly about it. I mean, I thought Soul was all right, but I also didn't think Soul was one of the better Pixar movies in, in the last few years. So, yeah, I'm kind of somewhat ambivalent towards this category this year. Wow, I'm, I'm actually surprised to hear you say that with how big of a, a music fan you are. Um, yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, we'll get into original score. I love the music in it, but uh, mm. I thought the, the movie itself I didn't, it wasn't as good as I was hoping it would be. Maybe I had too high expectations when I knew it was Pete Doctor and all this jazz music, and I, I thought it was going to be the greatest thing ever, and it didn't quite live up to my expectations. Yeah, I mean, Pete, Pete Doctor for me is one of the best storytellers on the planet right now. I Unquestionably, mean, he did, yeah. He, he wrote and directed Inside Out, Up, and Soul, which, uh, I mean, Inside Out and Up are both Pixar classics. But I, I love Soul. Um, it's actually closer for me between Soul and Onward because I really liked Onward too. Um, I don't think it's going to be up there in like the you know Toy Story echelon but I, I loved onward i loved how original it was and uh i mean pixar wins this award every f- time they put out a movie <laughs> pretty so much it's, yeah it, it, it's not going to be close it's going to be soul that wins this they won the, the golden globe uh pete doctor has never not won an oscar <laughs> for any of his movies <laughs> Is that true? so yeah wow okay well since best animated feature came right, in right. To, yeah into play yeah. um and I think Soul should win. All right. A lot of Soul. So, <laughs> so the next category then uh, <laughs> might have the exact same answers then, <laughs> at least for me. Uh, best Original Score. And uh, so the nominees are Da Five Bloods, Mank, Minari, News of the World, and Soul. Yeah, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. Uh, I, I love Trent Reznor. Uh, he's just from Nine Inch Nails, the fact that he's blossomed into one of the premier composers in Hollywood, it just is a true testament to his talent. So I think Soul should win and will win. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross. I mean, Trent Reznor has been blowing me away as a as a uh, score guy since um, uh, um, since the uh, the Facebook movie, which I'm drawing a blank on the name of. Right? Oh, Social, Social Network. Network uh, since that, and then. When you add to that John Baptiste, who's just a phenomenal musician, <laughs> the three of them just made magic together for for score in this movie. So yeah, yeah. And Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross are nominated twice. So that's right. Yeah, <laughs> they doubled their chances. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have best cinematography. We have Judas and the Black Messiah by Sean Bobbitt, Mank, Eric Messerschmidt. News of the World, Darius Wolski, Nomadland, Joshua James Richards, and The Trial of the Chicago 7 by Feedin Papa Michael. Okay, I think Nomadland's probably going to win this because um, I, I think there's just been a groundswell of support for Nomadland, and when that happens, uh, this tends to be one of those categories that it, that it wins unless there's another movie that really stands out. Um, 
And I thought the cinematography was quite good, but if I had a vote, I'd probably actually give this to Mank. I thought the cinematography in Mank was fantastic, just outstanding the way they captured sort of the essence of that time and just the use of all the different angles, um, sort of it at times mimicking the way that uh, Orson Welles shot um, Citizen Kane, but other times, I just, I just thought it was fantastic. So I would give it to Mank, but I think Nomadland will probably win. Yeah, I completely agree. I couldn't have said it better myself. That yeah, Nomadland's probably gonna win, but the things they did with Mank, the subtleties were just mind blowing for those that were really paying attention. All right, next one, uh, best supporting actress, and the nominees are. <laughs> Where's my list here? Okay, Maria Bakalova for Borat's subsequent movie film, Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy, Olivia Coleman for The Father, Amanda Seyfried for Mank, and Yoo Jung-yoon for Minari. A funny side note, Glenn Close is the only person to ever been nominated for an Oscar and a Razzie in the same year <laughs> for the same role. For the same role? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because um, Halle Berry was nominated for uh, the Oscar for uh, Monster. Monsters Ball yeah. and the Razzie for Catwoman in the same year. But this is the first time for same actress or same anybody with the same role. Wow. So that's uh, <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Um, I can see where the Razzies are coming from, though, because I thought that performance was way, way over the top. <laughs> yeah. Well, the movie itself was just questionable. For <laughs> Anyway, yeah. it just wasn't great. But anyway. Anyway, to the actual uh, nomination, I think that uh, Maria Bakalova is going to win for Borat's subsequent movie film, but I think that actually Amanda Seyfried kind of deserves it because, and I'm not even that big of an Amanda Seyfried fan, I mean, she hasn't done like really fantastic work over the course of her career, she's just kind of maintained this mid-level status, and I think this is her real... She put her all into the role, and you could tell. So, but I, I think uh, Bakalova's going to win just because of the hype behind Borat. Uh, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to completely disagree on this one. I think, despite the fact that the um, role and the movie were uh, not great, I think Glenn Close might win it just because I think this is one of those um, Lifetime Achievement Award ones because she's been nominated eight fucking times for an Oscar and has never won. Um, I think that's right, eight or nine, something like that. And so I think it's one of those where people are like, well, you know, Glenn Close has been fantastic for a while. Um, throw her a bone. <laughs> yeah, throw her a bone. None of the other ones really stood out. And so I think um, I think that's what it's going to be. I would actually give it to Maria Bakalova, though, because I, mm. I think she took a role that's essentially, you know, sort of one step up from a jackass-type movie, <laughs> and and actually turned that sequel into something that was much better than the original. I mean, I got a lot of laughs out of the original as well, but um, it, it was it, she was the one who was the heart of that movie, and just obviously the you know the bravery of what she did in that role too. I I, I would give it to her. I thought she was fantastic. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Next up, we have best actor in a supporting role. We have Sasha Baron Cohen for The Trial of the Chicago 7, Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah, Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami, Paul Ratchi, Sound of Metal, and Lakeith Stanfield for Judas and the Black Messiah. 
Okay, first of all, we have to acknowledge the the obvious, which is that it's absurd that both Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield are both supporting actors. Then who the, who the fuck was the lead in that movie? So yeah, I mean, that, that's just weird. Um, but I think it will be Daniel Kaluuya, and and I I think he deserves it too. I think his his performance was spellbinding at times in that movie. Interesting. I think. I think it's going to go to Daniel Kaluuya too, but I think Lakeith Stanfield deserves it more. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because the um just the inner conflict of that character was so well portrayed on his on his face and expressions and he, you know, he as a as an informant, he wasn't able to talk to people about what he was going through, so he had to portray the entire thing just in his facial expressions and body language. And while Daniel Kaluuya was electric, I think Lakeith Stanfield had a more nuanced performance, and I think that he was it has nothing like no knock against Daniel Kaluuya. He was amazing. He did he was perfect for the role that he was cast in. But I think Lakeith Stanfield just had a, a harder job in this movie, and I think he should be rewarded for that. Yeah, I, I could see that. I mean, you're right. It was definitely a more understated, uh, nuanced performance. Um, but I, yeah, I just I just thought Daniel Kaluuya was was yeah just blew me away. Uh, okay, next one, best adapted screenplay, and the nominations are uh, Borat subsequent movie film, The Father, Nomadland, One Night in Miami, and The White Tiger. This is a tough one, uh, and not because all of them were fantastic. It's that none of them really stood out to I me. I agree completely. As, yeah. as great screenplays. Um, I, I think Nomad and Land's going to have a great night, so I'm just going to guess Nomad Land. But who deserves it? I don't know. Probably, uh, probably Christopher Hampton and Florian Zeller for The Father. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I think Nomadland probably will win it. Um, again, the father being one of the few that I haven't seen, I, I won't say whether or not it should. Um, I I really liked one night the the writing of One Night in Miami, but at the same time, I, I have a hard time giving it to something that's an adaptation of a play, where mm. where even it still came through a bit as a play at times. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, uh, even though I liked the writing and and the dialogue and everything, I, I I would have a hard time giving it to. So I'm just actually gonna punt on that because I haven't seen the. I I don't I don't know which one should win, but I think it will be Nomadland. Okie dokie. Now on to best original screenplay. We have Judas and the Black Messiah by Will Bearson, Shaka King, um, Minari by Lee Isaac Chung. Promising Young Woman, Emerald Fennel, Sound of Metal by Darius Martyr, Abraham Martyr, and Trial of the Chicago 7 by Aaron Sorkin. Okay, I think Judas and the Black Messiah will probably win this. Um, and while I thought it was excellent, I, I have the opposite problem with this category. I thought a lot of these scripts were really good. Um, mm. I actually thought the, the script for, for Promising Young Woman was fantastic. Um, and so it's kind of an out, out of left field uh, <laughs> choice, but I would probably give it to Promising Young Woman just because I just thought it was the it 
was really tight. The movie hung together really well for me. Um, and I think a lot of that came from the script, the way it was paced. I, I just really liked that. I <laughs> I could not stand Promising Young Woman. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And I thought it was going to be really good because of the subject matter, the whole, you know, the Me Too movement. And, you know, I'm not coming at this from, you know, my deep-seated misogyny or whatever. <laughs> but it, I just thought, especially in the third act, that that story completely fell apart. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah, I yeah. didn't. I didn't. I thought, uh, I thought they wrapped it up pretty well. But I thought the whole thing with the bachelor party and, like, it, it turned... Maybe I was kind of misunderstanding the tone at points because it, I know it's supposed to be like a dark comedy, and uh, I was really into it for the first like thirty forty five minutes, but just uh, I thought the acting was just so horrible. Uh, yeah, I thought the acting was terrible, with the exception of Carrie Mulligan. I thought the supporting cast was just absolutely awful. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that that probably um, hurt the screenplay a lot for me at least. But uh, that said, I think Promising a Woman will win the Oscar just because really? of all the, all the hype behind it and, you know, the political aspect behind it. And uh, uh, and as far as who deserves it, I think it's down between Sound of Metal and Judas of the Black Messiah. I personally prefer Judas of the Black Messiah as a, as a film overall, but uh, yeah, I think Judas and the Black Messiah probably deserves it. Because I wasn't that much of a fan of Trial of Chicago 7 either, because that and Judas of the Black Messiah kind of covered the same topics, kind of the same time Same time period. period, at least, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Aaron Sorkin is amazing, but you can always tell when a movie is written by Aaron Sorkin because they all, talk like, he, like, they all talk like he writes. Yeah. There, there's really not a lot of individualism in his characters because they're all just so witty and like they're all so quick with the comebacks that while I greatly admire his work, I just think his he's a, a, he's full of himself and he doesn't let <laughs> his characters speak to you from the page. He he has to instill his personality into each and every one of his characters. It's true, and and especially because he was directing this one as well. So mm -hmm. um, I, I I quite enjoyed it, but I agree it, it wasn't as good as some of the others. All right, so now we move on to best actress, and the nominees are Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Andre Day for The United States versus Billie Holiday, Vanessa Kirby Pieces of a Woman. Frances McDormand for Nomadland, and Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman. Uh, there's some really good performances in here. Um, yeah. I think, like I said, Nomadland's going to have a great night. I think Frances McDormand is going to take home the Oscar, but I think Viola Davis absolutely deserves it for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. She totally disappeared into that character, whereas um, Frances McDormand amazing actress always has been and um her body of work is irreproachable but uh she does tend to have a type whereas viola davis i think just completely like if if at first sight if I didn't know it was Viola Davis, I wouldn't know it was Viola Davis. You know what I mean? Like she just completely disappeared into that character. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. Although I think that Viola Davis actually will win, but I, oh. but I but I completely agree that she deserves it. I mean, she was her performance was so good it actually makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, right? just yeah. because of how that character is. Like she was just fantastic in that in that role. Um, and I wasn't even as big a fan of that movie overall. It's another one of these ones where it was, it just came because of the dialogue and everything It came across as so much like a play to me that it, that at times it seems artificial. Um, but I do think the two lead performances and her and, and Chadwick were, were fantastic. Mm. All right. Next up, we're doing lead actor, best actor in a leading role. We have Riz Ahmed from the sound of metal, Chadwick Boseman, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins, The Father, Gary Oldman, Mank, and Steven Yeun, Minari. Talk about a stacked category as just far as profile the actors, except for poor Walking Dead, Steven Yeun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I probably just tipped my hand there, but I think Chadwick Boseman will win. Um, and I actually think he deserves to win. He was, he was really, really good. Um, although if I had a close second, I'd say Riz Ahmed, who just is going from strength to strength to strength. I think that guy has got an Oscar in his future at some point, no question. Um, but I think Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman, just um, just the the sort of uh, the passion and emotions that he that he imbued every line with was just fantastic. So I'll, I'll say he. I think he probably will win. You know, obviously there's is a bit of a sentimental choice there as well. Um, but it, but I think he does deserve it. Yeah, um, you know, Gary Oldman is fantastic no matter what he's doing, <laughs> whether, you know, he's Dracula or a, a serious black, any of the little bit parts to lead roles. But I think we're so used to his greatness at this point that we kind of ta- take it for granted. And he just won his big time Oscar for playing Winston Churchill a couple years ago. So uh, I think the Academy is going to kind of hold off on him. I think Chad Chadwick Boseman was probably a shoe in for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. He's going to get the the whole Heath Ledger treatment, and not to say that he doesn't deserve it, but uh, God, I mean, it's so tragic because he had so much range. I mean, f- to do this and have a multi billion dollar franchise under his belt as Black Panther is just incredible, and I do think he deserves it. Uh, but I, I have been a huge fan of Riz Ahmed ever since that HBO miniseries, The Night Of. He's yeah. a he's an incredible actor. His time is definitely going to come, but I just don't think it'll be this year. Agreed. All right, two left. Um, second last one, Best Director. So the nominees for Best Director are... Oh, well, that's dumb. I have a list that doesn't have any names on it. I just have the, the, the titles of the movies. Do you have a list with, with all the actual names? Best Director, we have Thomas Vinterberg for Another Round, David Fincher for Mank, Lee Isaac Chung for Minari, Chloe Zhao for Nomadland, and Emerald Fennel for A Promising Young Woman. Okay, you, you might as well dive in first. All right. <laughs> um... I think this is yeah. I think this is the problem with Mank is that David Fincher is such an amazing director that we're used to how fantastic he is and we take it for granted. So I think he's gonna unfortunately lose out here. Although I do think it was the best best directed movie of the year. I think he does deserve it, but it's gonna be Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. 
Yeah, I think so. Um, it'll definitely be be Chloe Zhao, and I think um, I think it's actually close. Like I thought, I thought her direction was very um, sort of understated in a good way, and so you know it wasn't as um, overly original like uh, Mank was, and just all the little things that that um, Mank was able to do, but. But I thought she was quite good. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which of those two deserve it. Um, I, I might actually say Chloe Zhao deserves it anyway. But again, maybe it's exactly what you're saying, that just so used to Fincher being brilliant that I'm kind of used to it. Yeah, I mean, that's where the politics of these award shows come in. It's not a, you know, it's not a professional sport. It's, yeah. uh, it's, <laughs> it's uh, just how a couple of these a couple hundred of these industry insiders feel on any given day. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it's the same thing in sports too. I mean, sports writers got tired of voting Michael Jordan MVP after a while as well, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. So then the final one, best picture. And so we have eight nominees. Here they are. The father, Judas and the black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, promising young woman, sound of metal, and the trial of the Chicago Seven. Again, I think Nomad Land's going to have a hell of a night. Um, they probably wouldn't have won in a lot of stronger years, but uh, I think this is the year for for Nomad Land, which would be interesting because it. it I, I think it's almost a shoe in that Nomad Land's going to win Best Picture, and it is cool that. Um, uh, somebody of Asian descent is probably going to win Best Director two years in a row. Uh, wasn't my favorite movie of the year. Uh, I think between Judas and the Black Messiah and Mank were my favorite movies, at least in this category. Uh, I'd probably give Judas and the Black Messiah just a slight edge just for the... Um, cultural relevance today but i mean you know we've discussed this and kane on this podcast and we're both huge fans of it both fans of david fincher gary oldman it was a great great movie but i just think oscar wise that judas and the black messiah probably deserves it more okay yeah i I totally agree that nomadland will win um although i'm with you it, it definitely i enjoyed it I definitely didn't think that it was um, the best movie of the year. I didn't actually think it was that close. And mm-hmm. uh, th- this is going to sound like an overly harsh criticism because I actually did enjoy it. But basically, it was a two-hour movie that could have been a 50-minute documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I think, and I guess it was, you know, it was based on a, a true story of these people. And for me, that actually would have been more interesting is, is a look at the different lives of those people rather than this story that they tried to tell and... Um, where it was kind of uh, meandering for the first hour of the movie, and it got better for me. But anyway, that's um, I, I, yeah, I'm not I'm not the biggest Nomadland fan, even though I did enjoy it. For me, um, and maybe this is recency bias because I've just watched it in this past week. Um, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah is probably a close second for me, but for me, the movie that I thought was amazing was Sound of Metal. Mm. Um, it just, I think, I, I can't think of a weak point of it. Just everything about it from the way they, they, it was directed to the acting performances to the, um, the choices that the screenplay made in terms of when to, um, sort of cut from one story to like the, the way it ends, 
And, and then just the way it was all brought together with its use of sound was just mm. fantastic. And also the story that it was telling um, of this, of this person losing their hearing and, and, you know, the kind of disability that we don't hear that much about that um, in, in, in movies. Okay. That was a bad unintended pun. Um, uh, and also just how the movie, uh, in my mind, what it did, it, it basically was a, a cinematic expression of the stages of grief. Mm, which was, mm-hmm. I mean, he really went through the, the sort of the, the bargaining, the denial, the accept, all, all those things. That's what he was going through with the loss of the life that he thought he was going to have and his hearing. And I thought, I just thought that movie was amazing. So that that would be my favorite one. I, I don't believe that it's going to have a chance of winning. <laughs> nah, but uh, yeah, it was brilliantly done. Absolutely. So those are our Oscar picks. We can... Uh... See how wrong we were after, <laughs> after the Oscars next week. It's basically like picking a Final Four pool at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, there's some movies that really stand out, and then some movies that a lot of people like that just weren't that great, in my opinion. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all up in the air more than any other year that I've watched the Oscars, at least. Yeah, especially because most people were just watching things in their home and without the press junkets and the attention, there just hasn't been the same level of, um, well, certainly the same level of excitement, but the same level of attention given to a lot of these movies. So who the hell knows how people sitting on their couches (laughs) thought what they thought of these movies. So we've done the past year, the present, and let's move on to the future of this industry. All right, so this is, this is sort of the near future, um, and this is basically which delayed movie are we most looking forward to? So there were obviously tons of movies that were either meant to come out last year and aren't coming out until this year, or have been or were slated to come out this year and have been pushed till next year with uh, either production issues or just waiting for the cinemas to open again. Here's just a, um, a non-exhaustive list, actually, of some of the biggest movies that have been delayed for one reason or another. Um, Avatar 2, which, you know, I mean, they've already delayed that movie for 15 fucking years already. <laughs> What's an extra year? But that was actually supposed to come out um, this year, and it's not going to come out until next year. Um, a Quiet Place 2, uh, The Batman, Black Widow, which has been pushed off a million times, um, and a bunch of other MCU films, Doctor Strange, The Multiverse of Madness, Eternals, uh, directed by Chloe Zhao, Um, Shang-Chi and the Legend of Ten Rings, uh, whose trailer just dropped a couple of days ago, Uh, Spider-Man, No Way Home, and Thor, Love and Thunder, all have been delayed. Um, Death on the Nile, the sort of uh, follow-up Agatha Christie to... um, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Murder on the Orient Express, yeah, that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, Dune, uh, F9, <laughs> the, the latest <laughs> in the Fast and Furious franchise. I told you they were finally going to space. <laughs> I called that years ago. You, did. you absolutely did. <laughs> um, Free Guy, which is a Ryan Reynolds, like he's in a video game type thing. 
um, Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends, trying <laughs> to make a, a trilogy, a new trilogy of the, of the Halloween movies after the uh, release of the sort of somewhat sequel, but somewhat reimagined, but not quite, uh, that was just called Halloween, even though it was a sequel to the original that was also called Halloween from a couple of years ago. That was all very confusing. Um, Jungle Cruise, just The Rock doing weird shit, and that'll probably make money. Um, (laughs) Jurassic World Dominion, The King's Man, The Matrix 4, Minions Rise of Gru, Mission Impossible 7, No Time to Die, the latest uh, James Bond one, and the last one for Daniel Craig, Top Gun Maverick, um, a fifth Indiana Jones movie, or if you f- or a fourth, if you don't count the the last abom- abomination, <laughs> uh, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and West Side Story. So those are all movies that have been delayed for one reason or another. Uh, which one are you most looking forward to seeing, Zach? Well, first of all, I'll tell you what I'm least looking forward to seeing, but I'll still probably see it is Avatar Two. <laughs> yeah. I think we we discussed this on this podcast almost a year ago and just how under underwhelming that is on a rewatch and how nobody gives a shit about the story or the characters. It's all special effects driven. And I mean, that works for a lot of movies, but for somebody like James Cameron, who is a really good director, I just think Avatar is bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, um, and and also the you know one of the least charismatic leading men of the last twenty five years. But anyway, actually, I just read something the other day. Did you know that Matt Damon was offered that part? What? Oh, see, that would have been a million times better. Not only was he <laughs> offered that part, he was offered a uh, percentage of the back end deal, which cost him almost two hundred million dollars. Oh, damn. <laughs> Has he has he uh, had a change of agents since then? (laughs) (laughs) I would hope so. Okay, but um, uh, I'm really looking forward to Black Widow. Um, Florence Florence Pugh is one of my top three favorite actresses at this point. She's playing Scarlett Johansson's sister, and uh, with David Harbour and Rachel Weisz, I think that's just going to be an incredible chemistry for that. Uh, Russian assassin family and plus I think the movies I'm looking forward to the most are the ones where I've been watching the same preview for over a year (laughs) it's like it was about to come out last July and then like every single time it gets delayed but they still show the previews in the movie theater I'm like just get out with it already um some of those are some of these are so far back like uh the Legend of the Ten Rings and the Batman, where I haven't even seen any trailers for it, that uh, you know that they'll come out when they come out. So, but with the exception of being Love and Thunder, because Taika Waititi is a, a genius, and what he did with Thor Ragnarok was one of the top five Marvel movies to date. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, looking forward to No Time to Die. Um. I think Dune's just going to rock the fucking world, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Just despite my um, well-noted professed love for James Bond movies, um, for me, this I, I'm definitely looking to looking forward to No Time to Die. Um, 
And uh, just as a side note on music, I thought Billie Eilish was just a perfect choice to do mm. a Bond song. That's just that's just a great uh, great combination. Um, but yeah, for me, it's Dune. I mean, I loved the books. Um, well, I read the four of the I think six original ones that Frank Herbert did, and then I think they brought in some other co-writers or something. Um, it and it's it's one of these things that. Um, you know, David Lynch tried his version in the 80s that didn't quite work. And for a long time, people have thought that this is somewhat unfilmable. I mean, it's one of these books that's just so dense and is about so many things that how do you cram that into a two-hour movie? Now, this isn't just going to be a two-hour movie. It's actually a two-parter. Um, and um, and it's going to be longer than two hours each, each, each part. But... Uh, but if there's anybody these days that I trust to be able to pull it off, it'd be Denis Villeneuve, because the guy is just, he hasn't missed in like six movies straight. He's just um, been, made great movie after great movie. And not, just he, not just he hasn't missed, he's knocked it out of the fucking park. It's true. Time. It's true. Yeah. I think, I think he is um, easily one of the top five, if, possibly my favorite, but easily one of the top five directors in, in the world at the moment. Um, and he just has the, he can do, you know, the smaller intimate conversation and, and pieces. And, and he can also do obviously the big massive sci-fi type things. And so he's, he's the guy that I would trust to do this. And I, I, the trailer that we saw looked fucking fantastic (laughs) and the cast is great. Yeah. I'm just really excited to see Dune. Yeah. And he's been mostly relegated to doing, not indie, but really like mid-budget films for the most part. But here he's been given to the keys to the kingdom. Like it is his sandbox to play in, and with that cast, everybody from Timothy Chalamet to all the way down to Jason Momoa and Batista, yeah, like, <laughs> Zendaya, and yeah, it's just a just a crazy good cast. Yeah, I mean he has so many toys to play with in this. I, I I've never read any of the books. I barely know what it's about. But so I'm coming at it from a completely different angle, but I'm so fucking stoked to see what this is all about. It should, it should be really good. It should be really good. Again, though, it's you got to make a lot of choices when you decide to adapt this book, as I said, because it's about so many different things and it's just so dense in terms of themes and subject matter. And and uh, so I just yeah, but I, I trust him to make those right the right choices for this movie. Absolutely, and hopefully these goddamn regulations will lift, these variants will go away, and we can actually see the goddamn thing. <laughs> yeah, we can all get vaccinated and get back to our, our regular lives. All right, well, thanks for staying patient with us. You know, uh, just like everything else, we had to shut down for a little bit, and we will be doing this with a lot more regularity now. Exactly. Uh, I'm excited. <laughs> So, with that said, you can find us at unsolicitedfilmreviews.com, and uh, you can find me personally at Zach T. Miller on Instagram. You can find me at J. Martin Cook, Cook with an E, uh, at in- on Instagram. And we hope you'll stick with us on this post, well, almost post-pandemic journey <laughs> as we go down the road and cover the film industry as best can thanks for listening everyone